Please stand for the Bible reading now. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Thank you, Jennifer, for reading. Uh, I've gotten a lot of comments about my tie this morning. I, I, I wasn't anticipating that. And I have to say, it's all thanks to Danny, because Danny wore his last week, and I was inspired. I said, okay, <laughs> this man can do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, you are so good to us. Uh, you've demonstrated your goodness from Genesis to Revelation. You show us that you are the king over everything. God, I pray that for this next time that we have together, that your word would prove convicting, encouraging, and that it would move us to worship you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I took a course on child development, and in that course we learned something called egocentrism. It was coined by Jean Piaget. I don't know if I'm saying that right. He was a Swiss psychologist, and here's how the American Psychological Association defines it. Egocentrism is the tendency to perceive a situation from one's own perspective, believing that others see things from the same point of view as oneself, and that events will elicit the same thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in others as in oneself. Now, that's a wordy definition. Here's how one psychologist, Jody Clark, characterizes it. 
Egocentrism describes someone who is self-focused and unable to imagine any other perspective than their own. And there's a great example, I remember this, I haven't forgotten, which says, an egocentric child can think the sun rises because they wake and sets because they sleep. Because where they are developmentally, they can easily think that the world revolves around them. And for any of you who are parents or any of you who can remember your sister or brother as a toddler, I would guess your experiences would corroborate this theory. Now, we want to be careful not to make quick moral judgments. Not all toddlers are as selfish as could be. The reason I bring any of this up is to simply say that an amplified self-focus is not just a toddler problem. The psychologist who I referenced earlier goes on to say, we all have an egocentric slant to some degree. We can all benefit from softening our egocentric edge. I suspect we don't have to think long and hard to consider the ways that we and others exhibit an amplified self-focus, especially this time of year. Because if you grew up celebrating Christmas, you know gifts have an exaggerated focus on this particular holiday. Right? On Christmas Day, there is no shortage of opportunities to make things about ourselves. Now, I'm going to list some questions to you. I want you to ask yourself if any of these have entered your mind, okay? Here's the first. Why did my brother get more presents than me? Why did my sister get the more expensive gift? Why wasn't my kid as excited about the gift I chose for them? How come my husband is more enthusiastic about what his mom got him? How come my wife spent more time and effort choosing a gift for her sister than choosing one for me? Why did nobody get me exactly what I asked for? I mentioned it 50 times. Now, as you know, there are likely very reasonable answers to such questions, but there's something in us that causes a defensive or selfish posture. Matthew 2 is an invitation to address a sinful egocentrism, inviting us instead to focus on Christ. Now, of course, we're not going to find psychological terms in these passages. What we do find is the language of kingship, and the language of kingship is what Matthew uses to challenge our selfishness, our egos, our kingship. One commentator simply says this, if Jesus is king, it means you're not. If Jesus is king, it means you're not. It's as simple as that. And that simple truth evokes responses. Maybe you just feel it hearing that. It evokes responses in the characters of Matthew, and it is meant to evoke responses, not only in those characters, but in all of us. Well, if you kept your Bibles open, let's take a look. Matthew 2. And as we get started, let me give you a short preview of where we're headed. In our passage, I understand there to be three responses that are characterized in two ways. And those categories are preservation and adoration. So let's read again verses 1 to 8. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So as this passage opens, we're introduced to a number of characters, and last week Danny did a great job describing King Herod for us. And to rejog your memory, this king was known for his paranoia and jealousy, who famously killed his own wife and two of his sons. One New Testament scholar says, Herod's last years were characterized by emotional and psychological deterioration, which is a pretty polite way of putting things. And note this, the reason he ended up killing a few of his sons is because they were vying for power. So it's no surprise that when this king meets these foreigners who arrive in town asking, where is the king of the Jews? It's no surprise that he and all Jerusalem would be troubled. We'll look closer at why Herod is troubled, but for all of Jerusalem to be troubled is understandable. They are rightly worried about how this unstable king is going to react. Well, how about these men, or magi, as other translations have it? Who are they? What's their story? Well, truth be told, we don't know a ton about them. We can't confirm exactly where they're from, neither can we confirm if there was three of them. People made that judgment later on, based on how many gifts are given. What we do know, and what matters for us, is why they came to Jerusalem, to worship the King of the Jews. That's all I'm going to say about them for now, but we'll get into it as we make our way through this. So let's take a closer look at King Herod. As I mentioned earlier, responses of this passage can be characterized in two ways, preservation and adoration. Two of the three responses embody this attitude of preservation. To get more specific, a pair of responses embody this attitude of preservation, and I characterize them this way as aggression and apathy. King Herod is someone who wants to preserve his power. Herod, of course, is technically, in the eyes of Rome, the king of the Jews. He's the one who had been given authority over this region, and he demonstrates this authority by gathering together the Jews in verse 4. Right? He actually has that power to assemble the chief priests and scribes. And remember, he's willing to kill his family members to hold on to this power. And it's for that reason that we can characterize his attitude as one of aggression. But Matthew gives us more specific reasons to conclude this. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. I'll read it again for you, 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly 
and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod's actions and words are intentional. First, he goes to them in secret, which is contrasted with Joseph's actions only a handful of verses earlier. Look back one chapter and we read that Joseph sought to divorce Mary secretly or quietly, as the ESV puts it. In that verse, Joseph is doing something gracious, something kind, something thoughtful. Here in verse 7, Herod's doing something shady, something selfish. Second, Herod explicitly asks for what time the star had appeared. And we read a little later in verse 16 and we see what he's up to. The timing of the star's appearance is how Herod was able to calculate what ages he should kill. It's why he asked for ages two and under to be killed, not three and under or four and under. Look ahead at verse 16. I'll read this for you as well. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod wanted to know the timing the star appeared to know how old this child was. Lastly, we can say that Herod was aggressive, that he was hostile, because his final words to these wise men were a lie. He asked the wise men to report back so that he could go and worship the child. Sure. But we just read verse 16, and we can see that his intent was never to worship this child, but to kill this child. And being so upset, so furious, Herod, not knowing precisely where this kid was, just decided to kill all the male children who would fit that age range. So over and over and over again, Herod demonstrates the lengths he will go to preserve his kingship, his position, his power. Doesn't matter if you're his son, doesn't matter if you're his wife, doesn't matter if you have a son. If you are a threat to his rule and reign, he will act in his self-interest to preserve his power. Now let's appreciate a problem here. Obviously, Herod is a horrible person. Obviously, we don't want to be like Herod. What's not so obvious are the ways you and I do live like Herod. Now, to be sure, Herod is on another level. But there is something analogous between Herod and us. Remember back to what Clark said. We all have an egocentric slant to some degree. Herod's egocentric slant was dialed to 11, right? It's off the charts, and it caused him to aggressively oppose this newborn king. We too have a sinful slant, an inward disposition that inappropriately places self against others, but more specifically, places self against Jesus. It's a disposition so self-focused that Jesus' kingship 
is threatening to us. And what do we do? We actively oppose Jesus because we don't want him having authority over that part of our life. Or perhaps you don't want him having authority over any part of your life. There's a song that captures what I'm trying to convey. As many of you know, my father has a mariachi band. I grew up listening to mariachi. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. I love that music, and I enjoy this song. It's simply called El Rey. And to my shame, my Spanish is not as great as it should be, but I do want to read it to you, this chorus in the original. So here's the repeated chorus of the song. It says, <clears throat> Con dinero y sin dinero, yo hago siempre lo que quiero, y mi palabra es la ley. No tengo trono, ni reina, ni nadie quien me comprenda, pero sigo siendo el rey. And here's my rough translation to you. With money or without money, I always do what I want. And my word is the law. I have no throne, nor queen, nor anyone who comprehends me, but I continue being the king. Now, in one sense, for people who have nothing, who don't have the same luxuries as you and I do, it is a song which cultivates dignity and agency. But in a darker sense, this song encourages a self-focused approach to things that many of us, I would say, can relate to. It's the attitude that says, no matter what, I am in charge here. You want to be king of your own life, so much so that you are unwilling to hand over the reins to Christ. Instead, you oppose his kingship. And here's what it looks like. It can certainly take the shape of a combative atheism. Christopher Hitchens wrote, God is not great. Richard Dawkins wrote, The God Delusion. Bart Ehrman wrote, How Jesus Became King. Kenneth Humphreys wrote, Jesus Never Existed. There is clearly no shortage of people, of scholars who oppose Jesus as king. Folks who not only actively oppose him, on a personal level, but publish books and instruct others to do the same. But let's not be so quick to say they're in the wrong and I am not. They commit that error, I do not. They're lost, I'm doing better than them. Here's why. Atheism is not the only form of opposition. It can also look like just giving Jesus a Sunday but denying him Monday through Saturday. It can look like saying yes to Jesus as it relates to loving and sharing about him with your friends, but intentionally saying no to doing so with coworkers and family. It's coming up with a myriad of excuses to oppose what Jesus calls us to do with our time, money, and words. So it's not so much the large, significant theological denials of Jesus' divinity, although it certainly includes that, but the many small instances of denying Jesus' authority in our day-to-day -day lives. It's any decision, any moment when you intentionally choose to set limits on Jesus' rule and reign of your life. You see, to recognize Jesus as king is to recognize that you can't live however you want to live. And that's a hard thing to hear. If Jesus is king, we don't get to just follow our hearts. We don't get to just appease every desire and whim. 
to follow this king, you have to give up your crown. Of course, Herod's response is just one of three. Let's look at the second, and we'll be concise with this one. Herod's response of preservation is characterized by aggression. The Jewish response of preservation is characterized by apathy. <clears throat> now, Matthew himself does not spend much time on this second response, and for that reason, we will be brief here too. But quickly, let's read verses 4 and 6 again. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod is attempting to sort out what to do with this news from these wise men, he goes to these chief priests and scribes to get some answers. And he goes before them explicitly asking about the Christ, the Messiah, the person who Jews were longing for and looking to for deliverance, that promised son of David who came to work on behalf of God's people, who was promised to do so, that individual spoken of all over the New Old Testament. Excuse me. So when Herod comes with a question, they answer it. It's like they didn't even have to look it up. They just knew it from memory. And they tell him, yep, here's where you're going to want to go. You're going to want to head south to this little place called Bethlehem, like a stranger who gives you directions. They'll help you figure out where you want to go, but they have no interest going there themselves, which is a perplexing way for these chief priests to respond. There's no hint that these people went to go look themselves. They simply gave the Sunday school answer, they demonstrated their biblical knowledge, and then they went about their lives which is ironic because the people who care most about Jesus' arrival is not the Jewish chief priests and scribes who were students of Scripture, but these Gentile wise men who were students of the stars. One scholar simply comments, they fail by being passive. They didn't take action. They couldn't be bothered by this news. And for that reason, we describe them as apathetic, which is a different way of preserving our kingship, isn't it? In this sense, it's not the active opposition to Jesus. It's more that you just don't care. You have a way you do things, and you're content with that. It's not that you hate Jesus or you want other people to hate Jesus. It's more that he's just not interesting to you or he's simply not a priority. And so you treat Jesus kind of like you treat your Christmas shopping list. You know you're supposed to do this. You know you got to get some gifts. You don't want your family to think you don't love them. But your heart is not in it. Imagine <clears throat> that with every gift that you gave, you had to provide a letter along with it that described your attitude as you bought it. What would that letter say? <laughs> Merry Christmas, here's a sweater I bought just for you. It was the first one I saw. <laughs> and I got it because I wanted to be in and out of the store in five minutes. As you probably know, I got a lot of things going on. There's always next year. Next year, I'll put way more effort into it. 
But that's kind of how we can end up treating Jesus. You recognize that there's some significance in him, but he hasn't made it into your list of priorities. Or if he has, he's on the lower end of that list. Now let's agree, this is some convicting things, some convicting stuff here. You can't read and consider these passages and walk away thinking you've never responded in either of these ways. And if that is you, and you think you have not made either of these errors, let me kindly suggest you have some more thinking to do. Because here's the reality. We've all done this. No one has to pretend that they're perfect. No one has to pretend that if you admit this, everyone in this room is going to be shocked. This is our sin problem, and it's why Jesus came. Well, if you're like me, you you want a book that lays out some principles. You want a set of instructions to correct what's broken. In Matthew 2, we're provided with one instruction, one thing to do. And it's not get your act together. It's worship Jesus. So this brings us to our last response, which I've labeled as adoration. An adoration that's characterized by joy. So let's read these final verses, verses 9 through 12. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had seen, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. For those of you who are parents, I know you can appreciate the arrival of your son or daughter. Their arrival evokes something in you, doesn't it? However, I think for those of you who are grandparents, I'd wager that you could relate to these wise men just a little more. These wise men, they traveled a long distance from the east to meet this child, this baby. You grandparents, you had to travel a long distance as well. It was a long journey to becoming a grandparent. Only that trip was not measured in miles, but in years. And those years are made up of all the effort you put into raising your child. And all those years, all that effort, all that life traveled, when your granddaughter is born, your grandson is born, you finally get to meet that new little baby. You meet that child with all the history in the back of your mind. And it's all that history that compounds your joy for this newborn. That's not so far off from what's going on in Matthew 2. These wise men traveled from the east, we're told in verse 1. And different scholars have tried to pinpoint where exactly they came from, per- came from perhaps Arabia, Babylon, Persia, Egypt. We just don't know for certain, which is okay. Because a point Matthew is highlighting here 
is not what specific foreign country is sending people to Jesus, but simply that foreigners are coming to worship Jesus. And here's why that's significant. Already we pointed out the irony of having Gentiles come and worship Jesus while the Jews showed no interest. That's ironic. The other reason it's significant is because Gentiles gathering to worship God and provide him gifts is prophetic. The Old Testament provided multiple glimpses of a time when nations and peoples would together be drawn to God. And for those unfamiliar, I want to read just a few exemplary passages. This is Isaiah 2, which you find the same thing in Micah 4. It reads, It shall come to pass in the later days of the mountain of the house of the Lord. Excuse me. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that, he may, that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah and Micah say that. And here one more passage from Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In these Old Testament passages, the Lord, his mountain, his presence, is the magnet that draws all the peoples of the world to himself for the purpose of worship. So when these Gentiles leave their country and embark on a trip to find this baby king and worship him, it's meant to draw a link between those prophetic pictures we just read and what's taking place in Matthew 2. Which makes sense, because who is Matthew writing to? He's writing his gospel with a Jewish audience in mind. To people most familiar with the Old Testament. Here's what Matthew's saying. Isaiah, Micah, David, they all wrote about a time when nations would gather to worship God. Look, Jesus is born. He can't even speak yet. And these Gentiles have been drawn to him because they know he is the messianic king. It's an important point, not just for Matthew's Jewish readers, but for us as well. The involvement of these Gentile wise men further confirms to us that Jesus' kingship matters for everyone, which is no accident. That is God's goal. In his book entitled From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, J. Daniel Hayes makes this comment, reflecting on Revelation. The picture of God's people at the climax of history portrays a multi-ethnic congregation from every tribe, language, people, and nation all gathered together in worship around God's throne. So this modest gathering in Matthew 2, where wise men from one country come to worship Jesus, is but a small foretaste of the great multitude of people that will be gathered, representatives of every nation, all gathered to worship him. 
And notice that the thread that holds all this together is worship. For these wise men, their worship took a couple expressions. We'll take a, take a look at these next. Before they saw Jesus, they saw the star, which confirmed where he lay. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Isn't that a great description? You can't read that verse and come away with a lot of different conclusions. When they realized that their journey was complete, when they realized that their search for this king had come to fruition, they had no other response but exceeding joy. They couldn't help it. It overflowed. Their expressions don't end there. Once they enter the house, simply seeing the child provokes a response. Immediately, they fell down and worshipped him. There's no hesitation, no internal questioning, just immediate recognition of who this child is, this promised king. And we know this action is significant. Prostrating yourself like this is reserved for either royalty or for God. And in this case, it's both. And if you wait, excuse me, if you make your way through the Bible, you will notice other times when people are in the presence of God and they make the same response. Just being around him provokes that pose of worship. The last expression of worship these wise men exhibit is their gift giving. And a lot of ink has been spilled on these gifts. People have made all sorts of cultural and prophetic suggestions on what each gift meant. And there are certainly some interesting and worthwhile things to consider on your own time. (laughs) But here's what we need to notice about these gifts. These gifts are in keeping with the honor shown to a ruler. In other words, these wise men acknowledge Jesus as king with these gifts, which is incredible. These wise men not only talk to talk, so to speak, they also walk the walk, because through the whole passage, they acknowledge Jesus as king with their words, with their actions, and with their resources. And for all of these reasons, we can easily conclude that these wise men worshipped Jesus as king. Before closing, I want to quickly review the content of the passage, only shape them into reasons for worshiping Jesus. So first, Jesus' kingship has a global goal. Jesus' kingship has a global goal. No one should have to doubt if God cares for their ethnic representation. This little scene in Bethlehem points us forward to that time when all nations, peoples, and tongues will be represented doing one thing together, worshiping God. And as we said, this newborn king, it shows us this king matters for everyone. Not just one region, not just one group, not just one place in time. Every language and people on this earth is significant to God. And every is an intentionally all-consuming term. 
God doesn't want any people, nation, language, or left out in his chorus, in his choir. Second, Jesus is not like earthly kings. On this point, I think we could consider examples all day. We don't see many monarchs around, but we do live with and under authorities. If we look outward, we don't have to look hard to find failings. And for those of you who have lived under hurtful, angry, and cruel authorities, Jesus' reign is relief to you, is relief for you. But also, my suggestion is if we look inward at ourselves, we should also quickly notice that we are not the best monarchs either. It's an acknowledgement that says Jesus is better at being king than I am. Remember back to what we said at the beginning, all of us have an egocentric slant. And I'm not suggesting all of you think the sun rises and falls based on your sleep patterns, but I am saying selfishness is a problem. Third, Jesus is a shepherd king. This point is related to the second, and we didn't cover it much, but the prophecy from Micah 5 includes this detail, that the promised ruler will shepherd God's people. This is also what sets him apart from authorities like Herod. Jesus cares for his people. He's the kind of shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. He's the kind of shepherd who knows his people by name. He's the kind of shepherd who protects his flock. His people. Unlike Herod, Jesus, as this kingly shepherd, would never dream of killing his people to preserve his power. In fact, what he did was endured the cross, facing death himself for his people. And this brings us to the final reason for why we should all worship Jesus is that he is the Savior King. In Matthew's Gospel, he provides a brilliant link to emphasize this point. Look back at verse 2. When the wise men come into town, they explicitly ask, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? You know the next time that title is used, the King of the Jews? It's at his crucifixion. It's used when he's confronted with Pontius Pilate, and it's used when he's mocked by Roman soldiers as he hung on a cross. This is what's so incredible about God's grace, about his mercy towards us. As we all at various times and in various ways seek to preserve our own kingdoms and oppose God's, that did not stop Jesus from coming. It's why he came. Jesus knew you and I would actively and passively reject him. Jesus knew about our egocentric slants, and none of that deterred him. He knew about it, and he was able to do something about it. He bore all his people's sins on the cross to reconcile us so that we can hope for that time when all is set right and all of us are gathered this multitude to worship God. The one who can accomplish all of that is worth worshiping. If there is anything or anyone worth giving up our kingship for, it's him. 
Let me ask you some more questions. Have you felt a sense of inadequacy? Are you burnt out by hurtful authorities? Are you looking to be cared for and protected? Look at Matthew 2. Look no further. Respond to this king in worship. Respond not only today, but continually. Responding to him as your king. To close, I want to leave you with these final words. And I would be content if these are the only things you remember from today. It's a fact and a question. Jesus, as king, evokes responses. How will you respond? Jesus, as king, evokes responses. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you came incarnate to be with us, Emmanuel, and that you came to accomplish something, to reconcile us, people who rebel, people who oppose your authority, to reconcile us to you. God, I ask for everyone here, everyone listening, that we would worship you in the highs, in the lows, in the big, in the small, and acknowledge you as king over every inch of our lives. That over every aspect, you do exclaim, mine. I ask this all In your name, Jesus. Amen.